the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, he's the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Salome and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed, and now I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight, until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked them, Is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. The Gospel of the Lord. All right, well, good morning. Thank you, Marty, for reading that long passage there, that long story. Um, I'm excited to be 
speaking and preaching this morning. For those of you who do not know, my name is Cody Quinn. I'm the pastor of Students and Connections here at One Fellowship, and I'm so thankful for the opportunity every time that I get it to uh, stand here and, and speak and to preach to you. So before I begin, let me say a quick word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for today, for this opportunity to hear from your word, for this opportunity to be molded and shaped to be more and more like you. May that happen. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Now, I do have a question for you as we dive in. Have you ever been deceived, tricked, fooled? Have you ever been deceived? Any turkey hunters out there? Anybody tur- hunt, hunt turkeys, hunt anything for that matter? Anytime you are bird hunting specifically, you use decoys a lot to trick into fool different animals. Where I, I have a, a friend here to help. Sorry for the online for that stepping away, but I have a little decoy here. Now, my father-in-law, I was able to go home this past weekend and to, to get a turkey. Um, but my father-in-law calls his decoy, not this one, but his decoy, Tommy Boy. So we'll refer to this little guy here as Tommy Boy uh, for the remainder of the service. But I want to tell you the story of my first turkey kill. It was not my first turkey hunt, was not that lucky on first time to uh, win the prize. But my, my next hunt, we went out, we set out early that morning. And one thing about my father-in-law is he likes to get out there super duper early. And early enough where we end up falling back asleep, waking up a few times and in time for the bird to come out. Well, we get out there and sure enough, the birds do not come to us. We can't get them to come close enough and we have to make a decision. Okay, what do we do from here? You know, it's late. You know, once the birds are on the ground, once the turkey's on the ground, it's hard to get one. Well, my favorite kind of hunting is when we go spot and stalk the bird and try and get up close on them, try and sneak up on them. So we go, we, we leave our spot, we find one, and we go to walk up on this turkey. And again, they're just, it's a guy and two girls, a tom and two hens out there, and we cannot get them to come close enough. So he looks at me and he says, all right, we have a decision to make. We can stay here, keep trying, keep calling, keep doing nothing. Or we can do what I saw on TV one time. We can put the decoy, we can put Tommy Boy out in front. Sorry for the online who can't see. We put Tommy Boy out front and we can walk behind him and just see. Even though turkeys have really good eyesight, that's what they're known for. They're not known for their hearing. They're known for their eyesight. Let's just see what happens. So sure enough, we got there and we're creeping on this field. And he all the time, looks back and says, all right, now stay low, stay right behind me. And he acts like I'm just gonna run out there and like do a little dance for the turkey. Like I understand this process, okay? So I'm, I'm behind the turkey, I'm behind him and we get close. I mean, it feels like, and my legs are telling me we've, we've trekked like 500 yards, but it's probably been like 50 to 100 yards across this field. And we get, we get pretty close. We get like within like 30 yards, within it may have been closer than that because I, I did end up getting the bird, but so it's probably super close. But we get there and the bird, the hen, they, they, they identify us. They realize, hey, so, Tommy Boy isn't real. There's something behind Tommy Boy. Something's off. And so 
the, the Tom starts running and he actually takes off and I end up shooting him down. Uh, luckily, I, I got the shot off in time and got the bird. But can you imagine being that turkey? Like just seeing, I mean, can you imagine not being the turkey and just some other hunter just, uh, just watching us across the field? But imagine being the turkey and being fooled by Tommy Boy and the train of guys behind Tommy Boy. Man, oftentimes in life, let me put this back, oftentimes in life, we are deceived all the same. We are tricked all the same by something that is very clearly a trick. We're fooled. We're deceived. And we see that in chapter 9 of our story. We see that all throughout Scripture. And in the New Testament, we see many people who are fooled and deceived by Jesus himself, thinking that he is who he, who, thinking he's not who he says he is, and by other forms. And so we're going to talk about that in chapter 9 today. And the main idea of my sermon today is that to see, to see through the tricks, to see through the, the foolery, to see through the deceptions of life, we must find ourselves in God's story. We must find ourselves in God's story. So let's dive into point number one, which is true sight. We begin in our scripture in verse five, and it reads as this. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, he's the one. Others were saying, no, but it looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered him, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it out on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Now we'll come back to the first few verses in this chapter towards the end but you'll see here in verse five, we see something very familiar where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And now where have we heard that before? I feel like this is a youth group question. Where have we heard that before? Last week. We heard it last week. Pastor Paul was preaching from chapter eight of John. And if you wanna see any of our previous sermons, you can just go to youtube.com slash onefellowship. So there's a plug there. But in last week's sermon, Paul preached from chapter eight. And we see where Jesus first makes this claim that I have come to be the light of the world. How did the Pharisees receive that? How did the religious leaders receive that? Not well, about like everything Jesus says. The, the spiritual leaders have trouble with Jesus making this claim for what it means. They argue that Jesus is not who he says he is, that he is not the son of God. He's not the light of the world. He's not the coming Messiah. But Jesus defends his claim that he is. That he's one with God and that he has come to bring light to the darkness, that he is the light of the world. And this is where we find our story in John 9. 
John 9 can act as kind of a case study of how this actually plays out in person. What does it really mean to be the light of the world? How can Jesus make this claim? Does he really have this power? Well, it plays out in chapter nine. He heals a blind man, a man who was blind from birth. And what we read, you see the disciples initially think that it's some sort of sin, whether from that guy or his parents that causes this. But we're told that's not the case. Jesus says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Proceeds to spit on the dirt, makes mud, seems nasty. Back in those times, they believed saliva had some medicinal purposes. But he rubs the mud cake on the guy's eyes, tells him to go wash in the pool. And the guy just does it. He just goes right along with it. See, he was blind. He couldn't see. He wanted to see. And this guy is telling him how to get his sight back. And so he obeys. It's understated by John, but for the first time, he sees colors and shapes. He's heard people describe flowers and now he can see them. What he's been touching and feeling his life, he now knows what it looks like. He's heard of men talking about physical beauty. Now he understands. He can see the sunset and the sunrise. He can see the face of his parents for the first time. He can see his own face for the first time. That is light to darkness. But we gotta be careful to keep this story in context. <clears throat> this story in John 9 reveals God's power to bring light to darkness physically, but not just physically, spiritually not to heal every case of blindness or any and every condition out there. We'll get to that later. That's not the point of this. Jesus is showing that he has the power to bring light to darkness, physically and as we'll see, spiritually. This is what it says starting in verse 35 of our chapter. Jesus heard that they, the Pharisees, had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, it is he who is speaking to you. And the man responds, I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. You see the physical healing, bringing light to the darkened eyes of the blind man was to point this guy to the power of Jesus, to point us to the power of Jesus, that Jesus can bring light to darkness physically and spiritually. But now what else do we know about this man who was blind, who can now see? His life was marked by shame, left to a life of begging for any and everything in darkness, not seeing, but Jesus steps in to bring meaning and purpose to his suffering and light to his darkness. And so the question is, do any of you feel shame today? Do any of you live a life of shame? And do you want to overcome that? In your sufferings, do you want to have purpose and meaning placed on those? If so, Jesus is offering to bring light to your darkness. There's a quote by Matt Carter who says, it's not the combination of clay and saliva the chemicals in the pool of Siloam or the man's obedience is the power of Jesus. 
This man could do nothing to make himself see. The only thing he could do was do what Jesus said. Do you trust in the power of Jesus? That's the question. Do we trust that God, that Jesus can bring purpose and meaning and light to our darkness? Which leads us to point two, true blindness. True blindness. Starting in verse uh, 12 or verse 13, it says, they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, I told them. I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Talking about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. The Jews did not believe this about him that he was blind and received sight until they summoned his parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked them, is this your son, the one who you say was born blind? How then now does he see? We know this is our son, that we know for a fact, and that he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. Why? Because the parents knew they said these things because they were afraid of the Jews. Since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. Excuse me. This is why the parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind, told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Here again, like in chapter eight, the Pharisees are doubting and elsewhere in the New Testament are doubting and questioning this healing because it broke one of their rules of not healing on the Sabbath and not doing work on the Sabbath. They even decide to throw this healed man out of the synagogue, out of the temple, they felt so strongly about who was claiming Jesus was. They come to the blind man first. He answers, recalling all the details. Unsatisfied, the Pharisees go to the man's parents. The parents confirm that he is who he says he is, but they're scared, they're fearful of these leaders, so they don't know how he can now see. The Pharisees then double down on the blind man who says, again, verse 25, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but I know that I can see now. Remember, our scripture today is a picture of what Jesus was painting in chapter 8, that he is the light of the world. But we see the Pharisees have been fooled, deceived, tricked. They've been deceived just like Tommy Boy from the illustration. They've taken this idea of the law or the law from the Old Testament and being from the lineage of Abraham and the lineage of Moses, who are great men of faith, they've made those relationships something they were never supposed to be. The law was a, a placeholder, a sign pointing to something to be fulfilled or something greater to come. And what Jesus is trying to tell them is, I'm here. 
what the law was pointing to, who Moses and Abraham were talking about is me, I'm here. I am the savior promised to come. I'm the light coming to break into the darkness, but the Pharisees can't see it. They're fooled. They're sitting there. Just think about the Tommy boy marching across the field, being fooled just like that, which leads them to oppress their followers, leads the parents to be living in fear of what may happen. Does that seem like a good spiritual leader? The pride and overconfidence swell in the Pharisees. And this is what's blinding them. Jesus is painting the picture that spiritually, the Pharisees are just as blind as the man who lived his life begging due to physical blindness. You know, I asked some of our students here from church to read the passage that I'm preaching on and to, to share just some of their thoughts, some of their insight. And Colin, one of our junior students here said this, here he, being Jesus, is calling out the Pharisees, but it's also a call to see if our own pride and our own self-righteousness are standing in the way of the light that Jesus is trying to reveal to us. A junior in high school. He's calling out the Pharisees, but he's also calling out us, you, me, is our own pride and self-righteousness standing in the way of the light that Jesus is trying to reveal to us? Are there any of you who live with pride in here? Any of you, myself included, walk through life thinking that we have it all figured out? Spiritually, do we think we've checked all the boxes? I've come to church, I've tithed, I even stayed, talked to someone in the parking lot, check off for the day. Spiritually, I am good. I even talking in the parking lot was bonus points. We can add plus one to the check mark there. Have any of you ever had this conversation in your head? I know I've had something like this in the past. Maybe even you've mentioned this to your spouse or something. Well, we went to church last week. This week we can do something else. Maybe go on the boat, go on the golf course, sleep in, fill in the blank. Do you see the progression here? I've checked all the boxes. Now I can go do something else. Living a life for Jesus is not about checking boxes. That's what the Pharisees did. That's the mindset of a Pharisee. And Jesus continually calls them out for it. All of the time. In scripture, he calls them out for their heart not being in the right place. Not in an unloving way, but a loving way, but very truthfully, grace and truth calling them out. So like the Pharisees, have you been deceived? I know God beat me up a little bit as I was preparing for this sermon. Has anyone else, let me phrase it that way, been deceived like I have been? Have you been fooled? Jesus may be calling you out here today like he did the Pharisees. Which leads us to point three. God's story. So starting back in verse one. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming 
when no one can work. In verse five again, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So here's the question. How does this happen? How do we, because we've all been blinded, if not blind currently, how does this happen? How do we be, how are we tricked so easily like the turkey? It happens so easy, doesn't it? You, you even realize you're tricked before you realize you've been tricked. Like you're already way deep in the process. Why do the Pharisees continually live in spiritual darkness when Jesus over and over and over calls them out? How can we identify where we're falling short? How can we identify our blindness? Well, let me ask the question, who's writing your story? Who is writing your story? I believe this is where almost every single one of our struggles stems from today. We place ourselves in a certain role of our story that is not ours to possess. If you were reading a book and you didn't like the storyline of a certain character or you didn't like how they responded, maybe in a movie or a book or something like that, could you change what happened? No, you just have to live with the disappointment of the character, right? That's an easy question. But who could? Another easy question, the author, the filmmaker. They could go back, they could change the story. And here's our biggest problem is we think we're writing our own story. We think we are in control of our own story. So everything ends up revolving around ourselves and our wants and our desires. No doubt if our life was a book and we were to read some details, we would want to change some. If we were blind, we would probably want to see. If we were sick, we would want to be healed. If someone did us wrong, we would either want to get them back Check your heart, writing your own story, or you just want to write them out of the whole story altogether. We would want to coast through life winning at every turn of the page. But here's the problem. You and I are not the author of our story. We're not even the main character. You're not the main character of your life. In Genesis 1.1, it begins with this. In the beginning, God. God is set up as the author of the story from the first few words of the Bible. Chapter one continues and says, and he talks about creation, how he creates everything, even mankind. He is the author and creator, not just of the story of the world, but of your life and my life. In Psalm 139, we are given a beautiful picture of God creating forming and knowing us. It says, starting in verse 13, for you form me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. I know this very well. He made you. He created you. In Colossians 3.16, to sum it up, he says, for in him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. You're not the author. You're not the main character of your life. Jesus is. Author, creator, main character. 
We have a lot of freedoms of choice, but you're not the author. And here's the good news. That is a good thing. This is a positive argument for everything we go through in life, for our life. The author and creator of your story says that no matter where you're from, no matter who you are, no matter what race, ethnicity, no matter what job you hold or what job you do not hold, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's a good, good thing. The disciples thought that the blind man and his parents had sinned for him to be blind, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. This happens so that God's work may be displayed. See, we're living in a story that's all about a good and perfect God. When we become so hyper-focused on ourselves, the good and the bad of ourselves, we lose focus on the most important thing, which is Jesus. And living a life surrendered to his will and his storyline. Is your life surrendered to his storyline? Another one of our students, uh, Kendall, uh, gave me this in her reply. A junior as well in high school. It helps us to see the importance of God's plan over our struggle and the power of having a healed heart rather than a simple fix to an earthly situation. It helps to see the importance of God's plan over our struggle and the power of having a healed heart rather than a simple fix to an earthly situation. Kendall, a junior in high school. You see, like the blind man, shame does not have to write your story. Shame does not get the final say. Christ has called you fearfully and wonderfully made. Like the Pharisees, pride does not have to write your story. The burden that comes with having to check all the boxes can be washed away because we have a good father, a good creator, a good author to our story. But maybe you're sitting here and you say, I don't really see myself in this. Maybe your story looks a little different. Maybe the confidence that you're seeking for, you're blinded by your bank account, that your bank account holds where your confidence should be. Or maybe your job is blinding you, tricking you, thinking that because you hold this job, you have security. Or maybe you're being tricked by your social group that that's where your identity is, and that's just a trick. Maybe if you're a student in here, it's your sports team, or maybe an adult who cheers hard. It's your sports team where you find your identity, and that's a trick. That's darkness. And Jesus wants to bring light. As I close, John 3, 17 says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He's not here condemning you. He's not here saying, hey, shame doesn't have to rule your life. Here, let me shame you for believing that. He's not here to condemn you. He's here to save and to love the heart behind Jesus calling out the Pharisees is not to cast them out like they do, the blind man, but it's actually to bring them in to truth and to the freedom of the gospel, to bring light to their darkness. God has come to bring light to your darkness. Won't you let him write your story? We often remain blinded to that light that Christ offers because we view ourselves as the main character of our own story, when in reality, we're in God's story for his glory. Let me pray. Father, it is so, so easy to, to 
get consumed by just the busyness and craziness of life and the things to do to succeed in life that we are so easily tricked thinking that that is utmost important. Father, may you uh, open our eyes. God, may you help us to be more like you. God, may you heal us. May you bring light to the darkness. May, we, may you help us to realize that it is a, it, it takes a lot of burden off when we make you the main character. When we trust you as the author and creator who brings purpose and meaning to all things. We don't have to check all the boxes. You've already checked them. God, we love you. It's in your name. Amen.